It's good to see you once again here this Sunday. Um, you know, I wanted to tell you a story this morning because it's our Awake and Hope campaign. Everybody excited to give generously to the, to the campaign this morning. And I tell you what, you, got, you guys woke up on the right side of the bed this morning. I just feel a charge in here. I like that. So yesterday, you know, there was a, several guys sitting around shooting bows and Jeremy Baker being Jeremy Baker... He said, uh, he said, you know what, what if I was to jump in that pond over there? And, and somebody said, well, I'll give you a, I'll give an extra $100 to the giving campaign if you jump in that pond and swim across it. And he said, well, all right. So he, he went and he, he, he jumped in and he swam across the pond. And so he came out and he said, you know what, I'll give an extra 100 myself for the next person that jumps in there and swims across the pond. So Richard said, well, you know, I love the Lord. <clears throat> That's literally what he said. He said, I love the Lord, and uh, I've been praying uh, for, for ways to give more money, uh, so this must be it. <laughs> so he goes to the other side of the pond, he jumps in, he swims across. And then somebody in the back, I believe it's Cameron Gregory, the guy that's on the screen, right? somebody in the back said, everybody here will give $100 if Pastor jumps in and swims across the pond. So I said, man, there's like 12 people here. I, I so just so you know, I jumped in the pond, I swam across, I raised an extra $1,200. It was me. No. Oh, man, praise God. That's one of the best hand claps we've got in here, right? Man, it was a good time, though. I think, I think probably something got in my ear, uh, but, er but everything is, is good other than that. So, so if you haven't been able to give a lot of different people have given different ways obviously you can give online and click uh giving uh, on our website and go to the funds tab click building campaign we got a blue basket out there that some of y'all have already been given into that and then at the end of service i think we'll have maybe jeremy and and probably get somebody else over over here to have a basket so just make it easy for you so you can drop it in or you can put it in the blue basket out there and we'll separate that and next week we'll let you know what that what that final tally was and just, you know, for people, some people I know, they, maybe they need a little bit more time. So if you want to give over the next, throughout the month or something like that, if you, if you couldn't do it right now, uh, we'll just have that basket sitting there and we'll give a, a full tally at the end of August. But I'm looking forward to it. Uh, if, you, if you didn't notice, if you walk into the kids' church, they already started doing some black painting on the brick. If you see it, it looks pretty good. So we're, we're moving that direction. Another thing to be in prayer about, though, is like is getting these things done. Because right now, when you order anything, it takes months to get materials. And then it takes, it's hard to get people to actually do the labor as well right now for whatever reason. So, so be in prayer for that because we want to move and advance as quickly as possible. And I'm going to tell you something, man. The church of Jesus Christ is always advancing. The true church is always advancing. You agree with that? And I think, I think right now, obviously, there are so many pressures that are trying to get us to just lay dormant as a people and as a church. But I think now is the time more than ever that we've got to say, you know what? The church of Jesus Christ, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Amen. So we're moving forward by the grace of God and we're believing God to help us every step of the way. But I want to continue in this sermon series that I started last week. Now, next week, I'm really excited about the message. I already kind of have it in my mind and I'm going to be speaking about government in the last days. Anybody excited about that? Amen. So next week's going to be a good one, but this is just going to not go there just yet. Uh, but this one is called Against the Grain. That's the sermon series that I'm in. And I'm going to start by reading 1 Corinthians 4, verse 11 through 13. And 
then we will pray together. So 1 Corinthians 4, verse 11 through 13, Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and here's what he says about himself as an apostle doing the ministry of the Lord in very difficult times. And here's what he says. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. Now notice this specifically. He says, when we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. Let's pray together. Father, we're just grateful for your presence. I'm thankful for every person that is here this morning or even the people that are listening online, God. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would send your spirit to strengthen us this morning. Lord God, we need you now more than ever. Lord, we need discernment. We need wisdom. We need to be filled with your spirit. We need to know what your will is so that we can carry it out in the dark times that we are living in. But Lord God, I believe that as we follow you, Lord Jesus, not only do you give us peace that passes all understanding, but you allow us to overflow with joy because we get to serve the living God who holds all things in his hands. And so, Lord, by your word, I believe that, Holy Spirit, you can teach us this morning how to live as you've called us to live. And I pray, God, that you would open our hearts and our ears to hear and to receive it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Apostle Paul's sitting there talking and he says, look, boys, we're, you know, ministry's not easy. And when you're a Christian and when you're following the Lord, things can get very difficult. And here in America, the Christian church is obviously, we've had it really good. Matter of fact, we've been for the most part respected. But that is going to continue to worsen as we move further down the road. And he gets in these situations. He says, we've been hungry. We've been thirsty. We've been brutally treated. We've been homeless. He said, but here's the thing. We go against the grain of this world system. We live differently, we think differently than the rest of the world thinks about pretty much everything, to be honest. And he says, when we are cursed, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure it. And when we're slandered, we answer kindly. And what you see throughout Scripture is that men and women of God who are called by God and are filled with the Spirit of God, they demonstrate that we are to live against the grain of this world system. Amen. And they're going in a different direction so that when they're going upstream and everybody else is just being controlled and manipulated by this world system and conforming to this world system, people see that that's a transformed individual going in a different direction. I wonder why they're headed that direction. It draws people in. It makes them question, why is this person so different? Why are they not just bowing down and capitulating to all of the pressures that are in this world around them? And the Apostle Paul is modeling that when we live out the gospel message in the power of the Holy Spirit, we go upstream, we go against the grain, we're moving in a different direction. And there's a guy, I told you, I think a couple of weeks ago, about a guy named Alistair Petrie, and he had this philosophy. He said that in any city... Right When you're living in any city, he said God always looks for one church in every city that is willing to pay the cost. God always looks for one church in every city that is willing to pay the cost. Because for the most part throughout history, what churches end up doing, if you do study history and you study the church, is most churches bow down. They bow down to government. They bow down to worldly pressures. And ultimately, they stop preaching and proclaiming the truth because of fear and because of the world putting pressure on them. Amen. 
And what he's saying is that in every city, what you have is you have demonic principalities over that city that are pressuring those people and causing them to go a certain direction, ultimately away from the gospel message. And he's saying you have to learn to live in the opposite spirit of that culture. Whatever the demons are doing in our area here in Clay County or southeastern Kentucky, whatever the demons are doing, we're saying we're going the opposite direction just to demonstrate that you don't have any right to us. We're not going with everybody else. We're breaking your power and we're creating a new culture and a new change. Now, here's, what, here's one of the things that he said. Because he gave this illustration. He said, you know, he said Nero was one of, obviously, Rome's, he was one of the greatest persecutors of the church. He used to he melt Christians' flesh up on crosses and set them on fire alive to light his garden at night. Wasn't that exciting? It was a good time to be a Christian in those days. And so Nero's mother, when he was a boy, said, I'm going to get you a tutor that's going to teach you everything you need to know. And this guy's name was Seneca. And Seneca said to young Nero, he said, you can do anything you want in, in, in your life, uh, Nero, as long as you can answer these two questions. Who am I and what do I want to do? Now, Alistair Petrie, he gave four, four basic things. He said, if you're a Christian, basically you fall into these four categories of who you currently are. And here's what he said. He said, there's one group of people that are in the church that are really, at the end of the day, just unrepentant sinners. Amen. These are people that they may be involved in church, but ultimately at the end of the day, they have never submitted their life to Jesus Christ. And on the most basic level said, you know what? I'm repenting of my sin. I'm turning to Jesus. I want true salvation. I want to be a new creation. I believe in you, Jesus. I'm following you wholeheartedly. He said, there's a lot of people in church that just stay right there on that base level. He said, there's a second group, though, when you're talking about who are we? Who am I really? And can I truly do what, whatever I want to do? He said the next group is just churchgoers. He said these people basically, they show up to church regularly. They love to check the box, but essentially they're just in autopilot. They're not doing anything. So on, on Sunday, there seems to be a measure of witness in their life. It's like, okay, I think this person probably loves Jesus. They come to church regularly. Maybe they're even involved in a ministry. But throughout their day-to-day -day life, Monday through Saturday, uh, they never speak about Jesus. Matter of fact, on, 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 in, in real effort, they're just, they're just sort of embarrassed of Him. They're not going to speak the truth. They're not going to confront anything like that. And ultimately, at the end of the day, they're just not fully going to submit their lives to what Jesus would have them to do. He said, but then, and he said two-thirds really fall into that second category. Two-thirds are just churchgoers. Amen. This feels good already this morning, doesn't it? He said the third group are practicing Christians. He said, now this is a much smaller group. He said, but these are the people who love the Lord, have, have committed their money, have committed their lives, their gift sets to saying, whatever I do, how can I do it for the Lord? And it shows up throughout their daily life. It shows up in their homes. They teach their children. They've repented of sin. They're not perfect, but they're growing and they're wanting to change and they're seeking the Lord. They're reading their Bibles. They're in prayer. They're practicing Christians. But he said the issue with most practicing Christians in America is they can fall into a rut where they just keep doing the same thing year after year after year and they don't allow God to do anything new or different because they just assume what God has done is what He will always do. And so we get into a rut and we just move on. But then he said the last group is a very select group of people. And he said these people are societal change agents. These people are catalysts for change. And these are people who look at the Scripture. They're practicing Christians, but they realize that what God wants to do is far bigger than what we're currently doing. Matter of fact, it aggravates them a little bit. 
They say this is not the way that it should be. They look at scripture. It doesn't line up with their life. They look at the church. They say this church is not as powerful as what God wants it to be. They get aggravated. They go into seeking God through prayer and fasting. There's a sense of hopelessness where they say, God, we cannot do this unless you show up. And it drives them into a place of radical seeking of the Lord. And these people literally at the end of the day, they are they are able and willing to allow God to cut anything off of their lives that God wants wants to. If he says you need to get it, give that up, they're willing to say, I'm willing to give it up, God, for the advancing of the kingdom and for the kingdom's sake. He said, you're going to fall into one of these three categories. So you got to ask yourself this morning, which one am I? Where do I fall right now? Because God is calling me into something. And see, in every city, God is looking for a church that's willing to pay the cost. Not just even a person. He wants a body. He wants a body that's going to say, you know what, we're going to live differently. We're going to go against the grain. We're going to pay the cost of what it means. But see, here are three issues that are facing the church today. First is an image issue. When the world looks at us and when the world looks at our church, you know, what do they see? I have people even tell me sometimes, you know, what they see because a lot of times people just say, well, they're modern and they got new music and they got lights. They look externally. Right? People look externally. And that's okay. But I want when, when people look at what our spiritual fruit is... What do they see? Do they see us as being people who truly demonstrate the love of Christ, who are wanting to see people, people changed in this community, who are wanting to impact this community, or do they see that at the end of the day, we're ultimately just bowing down to the culture around us, and we're really not any different than the rest of the world around us except for the fact that we meet on Sundays? What's our image? What, what do we project to the world? Do they see us moving against the grain? Can I tell you, that Jesus actually said this because right now in culture, it, it, it's, it's like the, the, there's this pressure to say, well, the church just needs to really be kind to everyone. And that's absolutely true. But what they mean is they mean for you to go soft on all these non-negotiable things. And that's not what the church is ever called to do. Matter of fact, Jesus said, if the world hates me, it's going to hate you too. The world will ultimately reject you if you are following Christ wholeheartedly because you are going a direction that they do not want to go. And in that direction, that light reveals their sin and they say, I don't want that revealed. But can I tell you that when your sin is revealed, it's one of the greatest blessings you will ever experience because it's at that point you can turn to Jesus and receive his love and his grace and be saved. And so this image issue, the second issue that's facing the church today is our voice. How does the world consider our voice? Do we have a prophetic voice that is speaking into these situations? Or do we, have we literally, like we said, gone soft on non-negotiables? I think most churches uh, right now, you know, and, and, and again, I'm throwing us into the lump. I would never get up here and say somehow we're better than any other church. If, I would hate for Jesus to come in here like Revelation and judge us and say, you, you guys got a few things going, but here's what you need to work on. Like, I, I want him to do it, but then at the same time, I'm afraid. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Because we are by no means a perfect church. And I'm not proud and arrogant enough to think that we're even a good and strong one. We've got a long way to go, children. A long way to go. And Jesus is calling us up. But our voice, how does the world consider our voice? Have we grown soft? Do we have a voice of reason? Do we have a voice that speaks truth into the midst of darkness? Do we have a voice? Because right here's the big issue is right now more and more. 
Andre and I, we went to a particular city the other, a few weeks ago just to, just to rest and relax a little bit. And as we're walking downtown this city, I walked by several churches and almost every single church that we walked by was pushing some kind of political agenda that was ungodly right on their front doorstep. And I thought to myself, my Lord, how, how is it that we're at? These are churches. These aren't just community organizers. These are people who name the name of Christ, but yet what they're pushing is not Christ, but political agendas that are going the direction with the grain of the world. And, the, and Jesus Christ has always sent us to say, no, we're not going that direction. We don't love the world. We don't love the lust of the flesh. We don't love the lust of the eyes. And we don't love the pride of life. We love God the Father, and we're walking with Him in holiness and purity. But there's this pressure, and you see it just slowly infiltrating until it's beginning to be accepted. And the last issue that we see in the church is ultimately relational. Because when people start to look at the church and see this, the question they ask is, are these people truly in love with Jesus? Are these people in love with the world and using Jesus as a tagline? What's their relationship? How do they analyze our faithfulness to Christ? When somebody looks at my life, do they really believe that man right there loves Jesus? I mean, just like with Richard last night, you know what I'm talking about? You knew that man loved Jesus. That dude would not jump in a pond unless it was for the Lord. He just, if you know Richard, you just know he wouldn't. He wouldn't do it. But... When people look at our lives, do they say, man, these people are passionate. They're not embarrassed to talk about Jesus in places where it's not fashionable. You got to be willing to talk about Jesus in places where it's not even comfortable, where people may reject it. Well, they don't want to hear it. Well, here's the thing. People are pushing all of their agendas on everybody right now. Why should we not push Jesus, the Savior of the world? I mean, honestly. Everybody is so opinionated and angry and full of outrage, pushing everything in the world, but somehow they're allowed to push stuff that ultimately won't save you, but we can't push the only thing that can. And that's Jesus Christ. I'm going to say we need to start pushing Jesus. We don't have to be angry. We don't have to be full of outrage like the rest of the world. I know I'm being bold right now, but sometimes the Holy Spirit will make you bold. And sometimes when you get in these situations, you say, I love you, but here is the truth. Gee, I don't know about all that other stuff. Maybe it's good. Maybe it's not. But what I do know is that at the end of this day, you and I are both are going to die and we need to know Jesus Christ. He's the Savior of the world. Joe Biden, nobody else is going to fix this thing. We got to come to grips with that, y'all. The government systems are not going to get better. They are falling. They are crumbling. And at the end of the day, we have a prophecy that says there's a stone that is cut without hands that will descend from heaven and strike the foot of all the world governments and systems and set up an eternal kingdom right here on this earth and we will live there forever. So listen, I don't really care. You can't scare me with death because I know one that was raised from the dead. You ain't going to give me, you ain't going to tell me to quit preaching the gospel to people or telling people to move forward with Jesus because you're going to threaten me with death. The Savior we have was raised from the dead. But everybody, oh, we just got to bow down. I need, Lord, help me to be kind today. So if we're to be true change agents, and I'm talking about real change agents in the world, not just going with the flow, going with the grain. We, we, we say, God, we cannot do this. I, I realize I cannot do this. I don't have the leadership ability. I don't have the wisdom. I got very little sense. I say ignorant stuff sometimes, even from the pulpit. I don't have it. 
But what I do have is a God that I can come to and say, God, I ain't got this. But you can show up and you can move. And we can become desperate. My people, we ain't all perfect. Some of us, we got strongholds. Some of us, we got hang-ups. I got hang-ups. But we're not perfect. But God, we're desperate. And we need you. And so if we're going to be true change agents in the world, there are four non-negotiables for the church to bring about the change that is necessary in our world today. Because the world's going this direction, folks. And if there's going to be any change whatsoever, and God is going to move in our midst, in our region, in our culture, there are four non-negotiables. One is humility. We pick up the towel rather than throwing in the towel. That means that, guess what, it's going to get so hard. The Bible says that men's hearts will fail them for fear of the things that are coming upon the earth. And basically, they'll throw in the towel, they'll give it up, they'll say, everybody's so wicked. And you know what, when you make decisions and people call you out and you get criticized and slandered and all this stuff, and there's that pressure, you want to give up, don't you? But see, when you take humility, you say, no matter what anybody says, we're going to choose to serve people. Even ones that don't like us, even ones that hate us, we're going to choose to serve people in humility and we're going to rely on the Lord to get this done. Secondly is holiness. We cannot move forward if we bow down and are conformed with the rest of the world and continue to live in known sin in our lives. He says, "You got look, holiness does not mean that we're perfect. I got flaws just as much as the next person. I got a bad attitude on occasion. What holiness means is I have set myself apart to surrender to the work of the Holy Spirit in my life to say, God, if this is sin, I trust that you can destroy it in my life. And you can purify me as I grow with you. We don't expect people to be perfect day one. That's not what holiness is. But holiness is this willing to be separated unto God so that he can make us pure. Thirdly is hunger. I mean, if you come in here and you're not even interested, like we got people, honestly, in all churches everywhere that legitimately they show up on Sunday. They could take the word or leave it. They could take it or leave it. It doesn't matter. They don't care. They're not going to apply it to their lives. They have zero hunger for God. They don't, want, they don't care if God shows up or not. It ain't going to affect them one way or the other. But see, we will not move forward. There will be no change without hunger. And lastly, there will be no change without hopelessness. And I know this sounds strange because we've been preaching about hope, haven't we? But what I mean is our hope must be in God. That's what we preach. And until you realize you cannot fix this thing, I'm telling you, as good as medical science is and all that stuff, it will not fix our issues. And there's going to be a million distractions thrown our way to say this is going to do it. And ultimately, all it's doing is causing divisions among us. And the only thing that's going to work is if we come to the end of ourselves and quit looking to everything other than God and say, God, you're the only one that can fix this. You're the only one that can bring about any change. And we get desperate for his presence and say, Lord, you've got to move in our lives. And we've got to understand the power of obedience. You remember when Jesus, he comes into the man with the withered hand and, the, and he says, stretch forth your hand. And I imagine that would have been a shameful thing for a man with a withered hand to stretch forth his hand in the midst of everybody publicly. But it's a picture of the church when Jesus says, you know what? I can bring healing into your life if you will just give me your weakness. If you will give me your weakness and in obedience, he stretches it out. He did the same thing with Naaman. You remember in the Old Testament, Naaman, he had leprosy and he went to the prophet. And he said, look, man, can you heal me or what? He said, I don't want to talk to him. Just tell him to go down to the Jordan and dip seven times. Naaman gets upset, says, no, if he's a prophet. He should wave over me or something and speak some kind of prayer and I should be healed. And his servant said, can you not humble yourself enough just to do what the prophet says? If he says dip seven times, dip seven times. He goes down, he dips seven times, and he's healed. 
obedience, the power of doing what God says to do. But yet our world tries to figure out ways to justify what's written in Scripture. And that's, that's one of the issues of our day. Is the Word of God going to be the Word of God or is it just going to contain some of the Word of God and then we will subjectively decide which ones are of God and which ones are of not? I don't get to decide. I think I see somebody post something all the time. I feel like on Facebook that I like, and it says, if God's word says it, I, my opinion doesn't matter. Yeah. And that's really true, isn't it? Yeah. There's a lot of things in Scripture that when I first read it, I wasn't a big fan of it. But my opinion didn't matter because I have to line up with what God's word says rather than trying to figure out how to get it to line up with what I like. And that happens in a lot of our lives. But so, so, so the church has got to understand obedience. The church has got to understand the power of working in the opposite spirit. I heard a story about a woman who was in Cali, Colombia. And you know they've got those drug cartels down there. And I just heard this story. It, 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 and it, just, it kind of impacted me. But this woman, her name was Ruth. And they had a little ministry. Uh, down in down in Cali, Colombia, and of course it was ravaged with drugs and and with the cartel and murder and violence. And the guy was preaching the gospel. One, her husband was preaching the gospel to a lot of these men that were in this area. And some of them were in the cartel. Some of them got saved. So they assassinated this guy. They killed him for preaching the gospel. Well, instead of getting angry and getting wounded, she grieved over her husband. She forgave her husband's murderers. And she went to the, to the mayor who she knew was most likely corrupt. And she said, how can I help? And they said, well, I don't know really how you can help, but we got garbage all over the city. So she took about 1,500 intercessors and went praying all over the city and picking up garbage. And 500 people came to Christ simply because they saw them working in an opposite spirit forgiving those that assassinated her husband and choosing to pick up and clean up the very places where those things had happened, where those people were throwing that garbage out. And 500 people came to Christ because they saw her operating in the power of the opposite spirit. And John the Baptist was the same. He was teaching people when Jesus was coming, here's how y'all need to function. You need to start living against the grain. Here's what he said in Luke chapter 3, verse 10 through 14. It said, so the people asked him saying, what shall we do then? And he answered and said to them, He who has two tunics or shirts, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then the tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? So he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely, and be content with your wages." So he speaks to people who have something. They may not have much, much. Matter of fact, they were living in a culture of abject poverty at that time because of the taxes of Rome. But he said, look, if you're blessed enough to have one shirt or two shirts, he said, if you've got two, give to somebody that has none. He's saying work in the opposite spirit because poverty says, I've only got two. I need to store up as much as possible. But generosity says, see, this is where generosity is over stinginess and poverty. It's against it. And all the people were living in the mindset of never enough. But he says, if you got two, go ahead and give the other one away and live in generosity. And to the tax collectors who were working in the spirit of corruption, right? And let me tell you something. We're known in southeastern Kentucky for corruption. We need to pray for our leaders, whether they be in politics, whether they be in government, whether they be in the school system, whatever they are. We need to pray that the spirit of corruption would be uprooted from their hearts. 
that they start making decisions not based on their own personal political agendas, but based on the integrity of knowing what they do stands before God. Integrity against corruption. Making the right choices because they're the right choices. And he says, if you're a tax collector, don't use your authority to abuse people and take more than you are really needing. Amen. And then lastly, he says to the soldiers and officers, he teaches them kindness against harshness because they had developed a culture where they had chosen to respond harshly, slander people, lie about people, and be harsh to them. And he's saying, you've got to live in a different spirit. You've got to go against the grain. You remember when the Apostle Paul, because I think about this a lot with the church and all the pressures that we face. The Apostle Paul's writing about constantly all the pressures that he's facing. I'm pretty sure if I'd have been the Apostle Paul, I'd have probably had a heart attack. I mean, because I, t- I can take very little. I got to be honest with you. You know what I'm saying? Like, I get overwhelmed. I get heart palpitations. Like the Lord is trying to strengthen me in these last days. He's like, Clay, son, if you can't, I mean, if you can't run with the footman, how are you going to make it with the horses, buddy? I mean, come on. You ain't even dealing with persecution yet. Somebody said one negative thing, you get tore up. Anybody amen? Right, that's how we get. We're, oh, gosh. And read about what Paul went through. See if that makes you feel any better about what you're dealing with. And Paul is now going to Rome, even though he's going to be imprisoned. They're ultimately going to behead him. He knows it. He's like, I'm, I'm going to die. Praise God. And he's on the boat. And when he gets on the boat to go to Rome to speak to Caesar, the winds are against him the whole time. The boat crashes. They, they're saved through his prayer. I would be thinking, Lord, I mean, how many times, dude? Like, here I am serving you. And he gets off the boat, and when he gets off the boat, if things could not get any worse, he's building a fire on shore, and a venomous viper latches onto his hand, and he just shakes the thing off because he could not be distracted with what the enemy was throwing against him when he was on mission. The enemy was fighting him every day, but he did not care what the enemy threw against him because he had a single-focused mission. And when we are Christians, we have a single focus mission. All of these other things that are vying for your attention, yes, sometimes we have to pay attention to what's going on. We have to be discerning, but do not let it arrest your devotion to God. It's a, I'm watching it arrest Christians' devotion to God. If they shut everything back down again, you know what we'll do? We'll say, ah, we'll watch online and eat tater chips and really not watch it because our kids are running around. I'm just going to say what, what needs to be said this morning. Because I look, and for those of you all who are online watching and you can stay dedicated, thank God for it. I do not, I don't say anything negatively about people who are work, trying to stay safe and protected. That's not my point here. My point here is can you still continue to serve God while you're attending to those other things? When we talk about obedience, I read about dogs who go to dog school. Amen, right? And sometimes I feel like I'm a dog. And they're going to obedience school. And the issue with training and figuring out whether a dog is truly going to obey its master, once they've got it trained, what they'll do is they'll have the person come in and speak to the dog and they'll put people in the opposite corners hollering other commands because they want to see if the dog will be distracted by other voices. And I'm telling you right now, we're being distracted by other voices, folks. The Christian church is being distracted by other voices and they're no longer hearing the voice of their master. And we've got to pray. Lord, there's a million voices. We spend 12 hours on Facebook a day. And my Lord, 
the information that hits you if you just do one good hefty scroll. It is a poisonous viper that latches to your hand that you need to shake off into the fire and say, Nah, I'm listening to another voice. I'm listening. I need to hear what God has to say on this matter. I'm not going to make ignorant decisions. It's not, that I'm, it's not that I'm not going to take advice from other people. It's not that I'm against health and safety. We want people to be healthy and safety. We want people to make good. That's not it. What I'm telling is you're becoming consumed with that. You're becoming consumed with it. And we're just thinking, well, maybe things will get back to normal. Things are not getting back to normal. They're not getting there. So what we've got to do as a church is say, things probably aren't going to end up the way we want them to end up. What we got to do is take a mindset like Paul and say, we're going to have some shipwrecks. We're going to get bit by some snakes, but we're shaking that stuff off into the fire because the same hand that the enemy bites is the same hand that God is going to use to bring healing to our community. They, they were shocked because he didn't drop dead. But you know what? That same hand that the venomous viper bit was the same hand that brought healing to that entire community and they all got saved. Let me tell you something. I'm all for people doing different things, whatever. You do what you need to do out there in this world. But I'm telling you right now, there is nothing more important. We, we, we're like There are people right now, as good as the vaccine may or may not be, I don't know. I'm not a medical professional. But when Christians push something like, when you want people to take that more than you want somebody to give their life to Jesus, there's an issue. There's an issue. You are elevating the power of that vaccine above the power of Jesus Christ in a human life. And I know most people ain't going to like that, but what I'm saying is I'm not even against it. If you've taken it, thank God, whatever. Well, you do you in that regard. What I'm saying is what has stolen your heart? What has stolen your heart? We'll do our best, pray for us, because we want to make good decisions for the health and safety of children and families everywhere. But while we're making those good decisions, let our focus please be on Jesus. I hope we can all agree on this. If not, you know what? It'll be all right. I'm going against the grain. The enemy loves to ensnare us in argumentativeness and in the systems of this world to get caught up. We've got to have the fear of the Lord because right now I'm telling you, fear is inundating the psyche of the entire world where we're making decisions based on fear in every, in every circumstance of life. And you cannot serve the Lord and make decisions out of fear, folks. I know it seems like fear is wisdom sometimes, but it simply is not. Isaiah 8, 12 and 13 says, Do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. And do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. God forbid I were to get sick and fall, fall dead. Let me tell you something. That still is not going to elevate my fear above the fear of the Lord in my life. He's the one that I dread. And you say, well, you ain't supposed to dread the Lord. Let me tell you something. You better dread the Lord. I know that's not fashionable either. I'm going against the grain there. Let me tell you something. We're all going to stand before God in judgment one day. What we've done in our bodies, whether it be good or whether it be evil, we will stand in judgment for everything that we've spoken, for everything that we've done. And at the end of the day, he says the fearful and the cowardly 
fall into the same category as, as, as those who were practicing witchcraft. The fearful and the cowardly. And how could we stand and be cowardly and fearful, afraid to speak the name of Jesus in a culture that's pressuring us to be afraid of everything except God? The fear of the Lord is essential. But see, God knows how to withdraw us in order to recalibrate us. And here's one of the things that I feared. i got to be honest with you. See, I think there was a season when everything shut down back in March where literally we had a lot of time as a church to really seek the Lord. But do you think that we did? Do you think we allowed God to use that? Probably for some of us, we did allow God to use that season to recalibrate us, to give us some, to give us some vision. But, but there are seasons in life when God separates us. He called Elijah out. He called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He, he drawed them out to recalibrate them. He caused them to go through a fire in order to recalibrate them, in order to reposition them. And we're going to go through some stuff, folks. What we're going through now is just the tip of the iceberg is the Christian church. It's just the tip of the iceberg. You've not seen anything yet. And I'm telling you, I'm speaking this, I believe, Almost prophetically, if I may, because, because I, I sense the Holy Spirit right now putting pressure in my spirit to say, look, most of the church is asleep. They're just talking about things that really are of no consequence. And I'm telling you, what we're facing right now is the tip of the iceberg. And you've got to ask yourself, are you really prepared for what is to come? Are you really prepared for what is to come? These men went through a fire, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And ultimately, the government was trying to destroy them because they would not bow down and do what they wanted them to do. Maybe I'll talk more about that next week. But they resisted and said, look, whether you deliver us from the fire, whether the Lord delivers us from the fire or not, we, gonna, we ain't bowing down to your stuff. So they threw them in and they saw a fourth man in the fire and God protected them. And because they saw what God did to faithful Christians, faithful men and women of God, they said, you know what? We're going to bow down and worship that God. Everything that is coming upon us is going to be a test to see whether you'll capitulate and go the way of the world or whether you'll put Jesus first above everything and say, we're elevating Jesus. We're putting our trust in Jesus. We're magnifying Jesus. We're going to try to make the best decisions we possibly can based on what he's given us. But our goal is to advance the kingdom with the short time that we have left. Our goal is to advance the kingdom with the short time that we have left. And so the power of the opposite spirit becomes a tool to undo whatever the world would try and trap you with because it removes the right of the enemy who seeks to destroy. So we move in the opposite spirit. And I know I, I, I've spoken boldly, right? So it almost seems like maybe, maybe we need to move in anger. Don't, don't, believe, don't, don't, don't mistake boldness for anger. I'm not angry. And I'm not upset. And I ain't arguing with nobody out there. I respect people's opinions. When people come to me and they say, I think you should do this, I think you... I respect that. I may not do what you tell me to do, but I respect it. And I'm not going to argue with you, and I don't just... I love you. And so my boldness speaking on these matters is not anger, but we've got to learn to move in the power of the opposite spirit. So if we're going to go against the grain of the enemy in our community and say, devil, you ain't got no place here. We're going against the grain. We're thinking differently. We're living differently. Today we're doing one thing uh, specifically by giving generously that I believe breaks the, the, the neck of the devil in this area. 
Because we know that we've been inundated with poverty and a poverty mindset and a lack mindset. And the first thing, I've got three more, three things that I'm going to give you and then I'm done. Just three quick things, three grains that we must go against in our area to, area to become societal change agents. And the first one is generosity against poverty. Generosity against poverty. In 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 3, it says, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Now he's talking about the Macedonian churches that he says they were living in abject, extreme poverty. And if anybody had an excuse to not give because Paul was trying to sustain all of the churches across a very large region at that time and he was receiving an offering. And if anybody had an excuse not to give, it was the Macedonians because he said they were in abject poverty. They had nothing, but they came to a place where they were willing to give even beyond what they were able to give. And so he stresses the grace of God that was at work in their life. He said, if you look at these guys right here, common sense would have told you that they should not be the ones giving. They should be the ones receiving an offering. But they looked at what they currently had, which was little to nothing, and they looked at their future needs, and they disregarded both of them and literally gave to Paul beyond their ability because they had experienced something. They had experienced a joy in God that overwhelmed their joy in money. Now, that's crazy to think about because if anybody had an excuse that it would have been, no, man, they need to receive an offering. They don't need to be the ones that are giving the offering because, see, and this convicts me when I read it, and I love that the Scripture convicts me, but by, by, global stand, by American standards and global standards, I ain't never dealt with poverty. I just got to be straight up honest with you. I've never been in want. I've never wondered where the next meal is going to come from. But yet when I deal with just a little bit of a financial difficulty, Son, I begin, you know what I'm saying? It gets in my mind. I start about to have a panic attack. And you start to see how money has a grip on your life and on your heart. And you start to think, oh my gosh, we need to hoard up as much. We can't give that much right now because we just, we just don't have that much. And you start to live in this poverty mindset when in reality you ain't even close to the poverty that people in this world are dealing with. But yet he says it's not you that gave generously. It's the ones that were in abject poverty that gave generously. And I think to myself, man, that's convicting. That's convicting that they would be moved to a place. But see, they realize what David said when there was a generous outpouring for the building of the temple. He said in 1 Chronicles 29, 14, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, Lord. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. When you understand that God is your source, He supplies your needs, and ultimately it's you that he, it's Him that you serve and not money, you're able to say, you know what, I can give this because I know that ultimately God has a principle. And the principle is this. This is what Paul ends up saying about the Macedonians and to the Corinthians. He says in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, he says, remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. 
Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And notice this promise in Scripture. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. In other words, as Christians, folks, when there's an opportunity to bless somebody, when there's an opportunity to tip a waitress, when there is an opportunity to be generous, Christians should be the most generous people because you can never outgive God. And he says, when you become a greater giver, you actually break the spirit of poverty off the back of a community because it spreads like wildfire. It changes lives. And all of a sudden, God says, you know what? They're willing to steward their money. They're willing to give it away. They're willing to give it for me. And because of that, I can supply their need in greater measure. It's a supernatural thing that takes trust in God, but that's the first thing that we've got to do to break that cycle is we've got to have generosity against poverty. Secondly, we've got to have forgiveness against vengeance. And I know that word vengeance sounds pretty messed up. I was talking to Richard about my, my, my sermon, and he, he said, you know, when you use big words like that, it kind of doesn't get to the base level of where people are at because the truth of the matter is ain't nobody in here probably going to go and murder somebody this week but you're going to have a real sour attitude towards somebody. And your vengeance may not be a physical act of vengeance where you stab somebody in the chest, but it may be a mental and emotional and spiritual act of vengeance where deep down in your heart you don't like that person. And you're not looking for their good. You don't want their good. But in Genesis 4, 23 and 24, this guy named Lamech, he said, I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me, if Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. That's hardcore, isn't it? I mean, I can just see somebody making a movie out of that, you know, and just violence everywhere, just shooting, just mowing people down. That's the kind of statement that he's making. He's saying, you know what? And now you remember Cain. Cain was the guy who did not, he said, I'm not my brother's keeper. I'm my brother's competitor. Do you know that that's as infiltrated, right? I mean, it's, probably, it's everywhere, but right here in Clay County especially, right? That we're not our brother's keeper. We're our brother's competitor. It infiltrates even the church to where churches look at one another as competition. We are not one another's competitors. We are one another's keepers. We're to love one another and self-sacrificially do for one another what we would want them to do for us. But Cain didn't learn that lesson, so it welled up in violence. He killed his brother Abel. God set a mark on Cain and said, if anybody kills Cain, they will be avenged sevenfold. In other words, if you were to kill Cain, seven people out of your family would get killed. And what's happening there is they're, try they're trying in their best way that they can to offset retaliation and violence. Well, violence then corrupts the entire world, which is why, part of the reason why the flood came in judgment. But when Lamech comes around, he says, you know what? A dude punched me in the face and I killed him. That's a good attitude, isn't it? A dude injured me, I killed him. He said, if Cain's going to be avenged sevenfold, I'm going to be avenged 77-fold. And what you see in the grain of society is that now this has increased so much that when somebody hurts us, we want nothing more than for them to be hurt 77 times. And it infects the heart of a community of an, and of a culture. And even if it doesn't come out in our actions, it lays dormant in our hearts where deep down when we look at people, we don't want them to be successful. We want them to fall. And it's poison. It's poison. But see, Jesus comes along and he says, 
You've heard it said eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth because they tried to set it up in Leviticus where basically if somebody punched you in the cheek, you punched them back in the cheek. If somebody broke your arm, you broke their arm. Because they were trying to set things back, trying to fix things, get things right. But Jesus comes and brings a different standard. He said, you've heard it said eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth in Matthew 5. He said, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. And if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. You know, a lot of people say, well, you know, I like Jesus dying for me and forgiving me. But when it comes to vengeance, I'm kind of more of a Lamech man. You can't say you're a follower of Jesus, but you like the Cain system as well. If you follow Cain, you're following the enemy. And so Jesus comes along and he's teaching them about true forgiveness because the first mention of this 70 times 7 is when Lamech says, we're going to kill people who hurt us. Jesus comes back and says, don't resist it. And so Peter says in one time talking about forgiveness, he's like, Lord, he, sa he, he says in, in, in Matthew, he says in Matthew 18, verse 21, 22, it says, Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister? Up to seven times? And Jesus said, no, I tell you, not seven times. And he's actually making a reference back to Lamech. He's saying, but 77 times. He's reversing what Lamech started. He's saying this world has been under the curse of exponential violence, exponential hatred, exponential vitriol. And he says the only way to reverse that is radical forgiveness. Radical forgiveness. He says if we're going to break the power of this sour attitude, man, we've got to be willing to forgive those who hurt us no matter what they do and release them to the Lord. But see, this moves me into my third and last thing, and that's blessing against cursing. And here's why it's so important and why it ties in to the second thing. Because anybody in here could say, I forgive them. I see that happen all the time. Well, I forgive them, but you know what? I ain't going to forget it. Well, you probably won't forget it. They hurt you. They wounded you. I understand that. But see, the Bible actually goes into a greater dimension of forgiveness once you actually release somebody. And he says, not only do you forgive them, but you bless them rather than curse them. In Romans 12, it says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. And then lastly, it says in verse 21, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, notice that this is radical behavior right here. Because it doesn't just say don't retaliate when somebody hurts you. Because it's not just an issue of your action, it's an issue of your heart. And to bless someone literally means that you have to want what is the greatest good for their lives. So what Jesus is saying, and this is, where it's at, this is what it comes down to. This is the most radical against the grain living that you can ever experience. Is that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, it was you and I who put him there. 
And let's just imagine, though, it wasn't. Let's just imagine it was those guys that had spit in his face, had mocked him, had beaten him, had put a crown of thorns on his head. And he looks down at them. And in that moment, it's not that he just says, you know what, I'm going to forgive you, but I ain't going to forget this. He doesn't say that. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And in that moment, what Jesus wants for them is their greatest good. He wants them restored. He wants them healed. He wants them forgiven. He wants them blessed. And you've got to ask yourself right now, what are you speaking out of your mouth? What is in your heart toward those people that have hurt you? What is in your heart toward those people that have spoken evil against you? Do you want their greatest good? Are you simply holding grudges? Are you willing to truly forgive and release these things to the Lord, but then take it one step further and say, in my heart, I'm going to begin to desire their good. I want them to experience Jesus in all of His fullness. And then you begin to pray for those people. The people who aggravate you the most are the people you need to pray for the most. Those are the people. And when you start to live this way, our attitude shifts. We start to go against the grain. Because like I said, I started out this message very bold. But we ain't angry. We're not an angry people. There are times when we've got to stand and say, we're not going that direction, y'all. We love you, but we are not going that direction. And there's times that we've got to be bold, but at the end of the day, you want to live more radically than anybody and go against the grain more than anybody. Love your enemies. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who persecute you. And if we can do this, man, we're going to see the Lord Jesus move in our lives. Amen. We want to live against the grain. I want you to bow your heads where you're at. I want you to just think about Jesus this morning dying for you on the cross. Him giving his life so that you could be forgiven. You could receive forgiveness of sins. You could be restored. You could be healed. And if you're here this morning and, and, and you're not saved, but you want to be, and you want to put your faith and your trust in Jesus and have him do a work in your heart, where you repent of sin and you turn to Him, you give your life completely to Him. Right now as an act of faith, I want you to just raise your hand up high where I can see you. Anybody, anybody at all, you want to raise your hand where I can see you. I see one hand. Thank the Lord. Thank the Lord. For that one person right there, I just want you to pray right here. I want, to, I want the rest of you to pray this too. Let's just rededicate our lives to the Lord because we don't want to just be churchgoers. We want to be societal change agents. So Lord, right now we come to you desperate. And Lord, I confess my sin to you. And I ask you to forgive me of all of my sin and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And Jesus, right now I believe, I confess that I believe that you were raised on the dead on the third day for my justification. And I confess you as Lord of my life. And that means that I will follow you no matter what the consequences. I will trust you in the face of everything else going on in this world, God. And I will stay in the peace that only you can give because I trust you and I'm walking with you, Lord Jesus. And I thank you for that forgiveness and for the eternal life that you give me. And for the rest of us, let's just continue. Would you just surrender your life to the Lord afresh? What's he asking you to lay down? What's he asking you to put aside? What have you not committed to him? 
just take a moment there with the Lord. We're going to start to move into worship, but I want you right there. You don't have to stand. I want you to stay seated just for a moment. They're going to begin to worship. But I want you to stay seated just for a minute to let the Lord speak to you.